Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Suma T. Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website, sumatsparks.com, S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks, as in Sparks are flying. And when you request the quiz, you'll be automatically added to my mailing list, and you'll be the first to learn about my virtual events and to receive occasional helpful tidbits of advice and information to add more love, passion, and joy into your life. So today, I'm super excited to have as my guest, Anna Hirsch. Anna's joy lives in the stories we tell ourselves and each other. With two master's degrees, Anna has spent their entire life studying and contributing to the storytelling arts. Anna also has a thriving daily art practice that deals with the mixture of everyday human head and heart wisdoms and foibles. They are a marriage and family therapist in private practice in California. Welcome to the show, Anna. Hi, Sumati. I'm so glad to be here. So great to have you. So um, as I was preparing to, I mean, I've known you for many years in community in the California Bay Area, but I was learning so much about you and about your history of activism and as a writer. And so can you tell us a little bit about your history of the storytelling arts and how you got involved with um, creative writing during Hurricane Katrina in Louisiana. Yeah, cool. I, um, I, I, it occurred to me at some point uh, as I was looking around at myself over the last several years, five years, that like everything I've done has to do with storytelling. My mm. undergraduate degree was in history. Uh, I ended up wanting to pursue creative writing, so I moved from sh- Chicago where I was an undergrad down to Louisiana and was in a master's in creative writing. And I actually lived there through through Katrina. Uh, And then I got kind of interested in like the combination of history storytelling and creative writing storytelling, ended up publishing an article, an oral history review. I was kind of trying to look at like how creative writers might have something to teach us about how people tell their own stories just on the fly and what that Mm -hmm. adds to our understanding of history. Uh, So I interviewed a bunch of um, other master's degree students uh, who were studying creative writing but also had their own hurricane narrative. You know, they Mm -hmm. lived through through Katrina as well. Um, Yeah, and so just really trying to think about the creative process of storytelling and where it lives in different places and then Ended up here as a in California as a marriage and family therapist, sitting with people in their stories in private practice. So I've just kind of steeped myself in this reality of storytelling, how people tell their stories, the meaning they make. Mm-hmm, very cool. And you're working on a um, co-biography, you call it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, my mother approached me a several years ago and asked me if I would be willing to help her uh, tell the story of her life. And uh, we've been playing with this concept. It's a neuroscientist named um, Daniel Siegel. He takes the word me and we and smushes it together and says that we actually, our subjectivity 
uh, to use a fun, fancy word, basically our sense of self uh, and, the, and the, the way we look at the world uh, is actually a muy, <laughs> a me and a we What is together. it? How do you spell that? M-W-E, muy? Exactly. Capital M, <laughs> capital W, little case E. And so I, I decided at some point that my mom and I were, were writing a memoir, uh, <laughs> being silly with that language, but we really are trying to figure out how we're telling her story, but we're using both my point of view and her point of view together to tell to tell her life story. She has a really amazing, rich story as well, which is that she came to this country uh, close to the age of 30 as somebody living with a disability, previously in one culture in Norway and then in the United States, and had a really different experience. And so she's sitting around in the 1970s going, there's something to this. I think there's something about, I'm going to call it disability studies. You know, so this was one of the first people in that era who was really trying to push the idea that universities and the humanities needed to bring in the discipline of disability studies. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was around when those um, fields were being developed and really kind of trying to push that. She actually had an article published in the Oral History Review as well um, that was about disabled people telling their stories. So we have this funny shared history <laughs> being in the oral history review uh, as one of our main publications. And so we've, we're really trying to play with that idea in this project as well. We're publishing as a blog right now little bits of this. Um, and the project is called Meet Me in the Margin. Mm-hmm. We're really trying to invite people into marginal spaces and kind of play with the concept of centering. It gets talked a lot about in... Um, social justice reality and we're like you know what maybe we don't need to travel to the center maybe the center needs to come to us ah so that's that's sort of the the place that we're playing with there and in how we're telling that story i love that and your mother was bisexual so how did that influence your um adult uh sexuality and how do you identify now yeah, I also identify as bisexual, um, you know, to pansexual. Um, I think that really had a big impact on me. Um, she wasn't very out about it when I was growing up. Um, but I think that the, the impact was more under the radar. Like, I think she was sitting around willing to think differently about sexuality. And so she created a, an environment where it was okay to think about you know, who you are uh, as a um, a person with a sexuality, with a gender that was, you know, with a body that didn't have to fit into a box. And so I early on got a lot of room to, to push back on some of those dominant narratives. So I got a lot of um, approval of that. I actually was wondering and thinking that it might be nice for me to name, go ahead and name some of my social identities. Okay, great. Yeah, I just think that it's a it's a useful practice. I identify as genderqueer. I use they pronouns. I also use she pronouns. Um, I'm white. Um, I'm non-disabled physically, but I identify as having mental mental illness. Um, I'm Jewish, and then also Norwegian. So I have a, a fun story of you know 
being baptized and then later having a mikvah and having a bat mitzvah. So I've, I've co- covered a lot of ground in, in Western <laughs> religions. Um, and I'm from the U.S. and I'm, I'm, I would say I have decent access to wealth. And so I just think those are some, yeah, just important places to um, position myself in the conversation. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, so you are a, um, you're a marriage and family therapist, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Just want to make sure I get that title right. So um, what is your relationship to relationship? <laughs> yeah. It's a question that I sometimes ask other people as well. Um, uh, you know, I think at this point, I, uh, my partner uh, has used the expression before what works Amory like we're like maybe we're not talking about necessarily monogamy or polyamory we're talking about just like what is working Uh, I like to identify um, with polyamory in a political sense like trying to get the word out there trying to make it more normal but I Mm -hmm. think I I think I really identify with you of like that we're really creating what works for us moment to moment Um, and uh, you know, I know that I that there's a there's an author. I'm not I haven't read his book. I think it's called Love and Freedom. His uh, name is, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Jorge Ferrer. Mm-hmm. He uses the term novogamy to mean mm. the same thing. Um, that there's like a range of ways of I, identifying or relating to relationships where it's like co-creative in the moment in the fabric of who's relating. Um, so I think at this point, I would say that that's my relationship to relationships. I also, you know, tend to call myself queer and I think I'm more demisexual, um, Mm -hmm. in terms of like how much like heart connection I kind of want going on. And yeah, I think I really got to that place of demisexual in part from actually having a friend who I went to high school with named David J. I don't know if you're familiar with David J. No. He is a leader in the asexuality community. Mm-hmm. And so I just got sometime early on in living in California introduced to the concept of asexuality. And I was like, huh, yeah, I don't quite know what to do with this. Uh, my training, you know, in dominant narratives that, you know, you're supposed to be a sexual being or what that even means. You know, maybe asexuality is a sexual, you know, is, is sexuality in its way. Um, and then I actually was traveling uh, for a while in Guatemala one summer, and I became very close friends with a man who's um, gay, and I kind of fell in love with him a little bit, and it was a very asexual love. And I mm-hmm. had this moment of going, oh, I don't think my relationship to relationships is all about sex, and I don't think it's all about love, and I think it's got it just got a much wider range than I really understood about myself previously. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a real, some real eye-opening experiences about myself there. Right. Um, so for those that haven't heard those terms before, can you define demisexual and as far as you know, what does asexual mean? And is there also a term I've heard bandied about aromantic? Like what are the differences between asexual and aromantic and for those that don't know, what does demisexual mean? 
Yeah, and I'll give you my limited knowledge. I'm glad to have some knowledge. I have personal knowledge and I have some knowledge, but I'm definitely not uh, well-versed in these in these topics. You know, I think sometimes people think of demisexual as a way of saying somewhere in um, where you're you're not necessarily sexual, like everything can feel sexual. You can be aroused by, you know, like the wind. <laughs> and you're not right. like uh, asexual all the way on the other end where it's like, sex, be, you know, being a sexual, uh, sexually aroused sexual being is not necessarily something that just is like happening for you a lot. Um, that somewhere in the middle of that is like, it takes the right kind of like container and this and that, and there's a bunch of stuff that is in place, and then you have your arousal. Now that's my, you know, way of thinking about it. I probably am doing it not a great, a great range or job <laughs> explaining that, but I have found it helpful to think about it that way because I'm just like, oh, it's okay for me to have my container. I don't have to feel hypersexualized and I don't have to feel asexual. You know, my mother, um, I didn't mention before, actually is disabled, uh, physically disabled. She had polio, so this is part of why she's really interested in disability studies. Um, oh, I did say that she had a disability. Anyway, um, <laughs> but she had a lot of narratives coming at her that she wasn't a sexual being. So she really, like, had to grapple with that and push back on that. And I think that that can happen in all kinds of ways for people. You know, if you're a woman, you're either, like, very sexual or not sex, you know. And so for me to, like, get to have a space where I got to be a little more, feel like a little more in control of what has me feel sexual, I don't have to think of myself as completely not or completely an object of it. Mm -hmm. That's what the demisexual gives me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I just want to insert that, that, that I, sorry, I just want to insert that I have been identifying that way myself after menopause because, um, and I've heard a lot of women in my age group talk about where they're just really not interested in sex at all, just for sex sake anymore. Like it really has to be in the context of a loving friendship at the least, um, to even feel aroused, like the arousal just doesn't even come up unless there's the full connection there. Whereas when I was younger, I would, you know, be able to hook up with somebody who I didn't have any kind of feelings of love for, but that seems to have faded away. And I think that's true for a lot of mature women. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, totally. And I think that for me, having this experience of kind of like um, being uh, emotionally aroused by this friend who I met while I was traveling in Guatemala, this gay friend, you know, like I think that was one of the early times where I was using the language of heartgasm, mm-hmm. you know, so there's like this way of being playful with like I had something that felt like it was like ecstasy going off in my heart. It was like very physiological, you know. Right. It wasn't just uh but it isn't the kind of like sort of way that we think of like genitalia and like erogenous zones and like all of the science and storytelling about what quote unquote proper sexuality is. Um, Right. And then asexual and aromantic, what do you know about those terms? Yeah. I mean, I think that some people really want to be able to, 
to um, talk about the ways that and, and be acknowledged for the ways that they don't make sense of um, sexuality and romantic um, narratives or experiences. They're just different from that and in, in some ways opposite or, or without it, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've had clients who identify as aromantic and, you know, one of the things that can come up is, is uh, shame around feeling like they miss, they're missing somebody, they're missing their partner, or they're missing somebody, but they just don't get what romance is. They're like, I don't even know what you mean when you say you want more romance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that there's a there's a, a real experience that's happening for people where, you know, standard narratives, experiences, shared understandings of sexuality and romance just aren't applicable for some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it does, you know, I think there's, you know, under the umbrella of ethical non-monogamy, there's so many different expressions of that, but still most people think of it as sexual expressions. So when people mm-hmm. think about non-monogamy, they think like, oh, we're fucking either as swingers or we're fucking as loving partners in love or we're fucking as somewhere in between, but there's always the fucking, you know. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I think like this broadens the umbrella further out to people who value one another deeply in, in deep love who may not have a sexual connection. And I do see that a lot in um, – and I, I have a post-romantic partner, so this is a term I've learned recently called a post-romantic partner, um, where you're still mm-hmm. partnered with somebody, but the romantic sexual part is no longer on the table. And I think there's a lot of people in the polyamory community who stay with a partner, may continue to be a nesting partner with them, and have just come to an agreement that that part is not there. Maybe it never was, or maybe it used to be and isn't anymore. But that doesn't mean they have to break up and like go their separate ways. They can still be in the poly family and still care about each other and make decisions together without the sexual piece. Have you seen that a lot in your life? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's the uh, we get to have a range of ways of talking about uh, relating and then relating over time. And the changes, you know, transition, breakup, these these frameworks and experiences are happening for people in different ways all of the time. And I think that, um, again, maybe we're coming back, I come back to this kind of what works amory or navogamy or like willingness to be inclusive, like, like, okay, like, I have maybe I have a part of me that's demisexual and a part of me that's very sexual and it's mm-hmm. context specific or it's historical specific. Um, I think that, you know, people, when we, one of the sort of really fun, juicy concepts of non-monogamy for me personally was like, Oh, like I get to be more things than what the world is telling me. And that continues to be true. We get to be the things that we are moment to moment. And sometimes that includes the dominant narrative. <laughs> you know, right. we might want to get to be very romantic. Um, and then at another time, that's not what's working in this particular relationship with this particular person. And we work mm-hmm. that out. And sometimes we we have to take some time and process the work through it. But 
there's room for that conversation. You know, I think I got real lucky with my um, personal trajectory around relationships. Um, so I, I fairly early met somebody who wanted wanted to join me in that conversation and really wanted to talk about these things. And that was a huge boon for my ability to explore. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about your partner, William? Yeah. And so did were were you both already considering alternative relationship structures when you met, or did one of you kind of introduce it to the other? We were both uh, thinking about it for different reasons, you know, with different with different backgrounds. Uh, I don't know that either of us were per- were very educated about it. I mean, he uh, had the ethical slut. I had friends who were purporting to be, you know, or exploring something, breaking something open in their relationship to new ways of being. So we both had some amount of, some amount of resource, but we were, um, we were, just, we, we shared a willingness and an interest to mm-hmm. be present and real with each other about these kind of parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And what were like uh, one or two big mistakes that you made and learned from early on in your relationship? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this just, just um, today. You know, there's this concept in therapy called uh, post-traumatic growth uh, <laughs> where you can have like a really awful experience and you wouldn't wish it on anybody and at the same time you 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 know that you couldn't be the person you are and you know i think looking back on on the way that our relationship we were navigating toward we were monogamous for like i don't know a year or two and then we were uh, trying to be open and I had for a long time told this story of, for me personally, like I felt like I took a wrecking ball to some of the dominant narratives in, inside myself, and I just shattered them. I was like, ugh, shatter. But then I was like for years pulling these, like the debris of that out of me. Mm. And I, I think I thought for a while, like maybe that was a cool way to do it. <laughs> and now I'm like, well, I'm not sure I recommend that anymore. I mean, it's true that I'm who I am because of because I did that that way. But I think if I had uh, a way of looking now at the mistakes, I you know, I I you know, there were incidents, things that we did to each other, but that does no longer feel like the mistakes. I think mm-hmm. the places where we fell down were just not having enough support, going slowly, you know, knowing what compassion was, having boundaries as a concept, having therapists, you know, or like being in some uh, more, I would say, even structured, you know, way of, of learning together. We were just kind of flying around. And when we got to California, we, the structure that we had was community, and it helped immensely. But I mm-hmm. think we could have had even more support as individuals, let alone in a relationship, learning how to do, how to navigate these waters. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like to talk about boundaries a lot, and uh, I'm known for saying that you never have to break up if you are speaking your truth and able to listen to your partner's truth and holding your boundaries. If, you're, if you can do all those three things, 
then you can transition to a different kind of love and not have to break up where you're like hating the other person and you want to burn down their house, you know? Like if you're courageous Mm -hmm. enough to ask for what you want, you can hold the space to hear their truth, even when it's hard, and then you can hold to your boundaries. So many of us just let go of our boundaries because we're a fear of abandonment, don't want to be alone, et cetera. So can you talk a little bit about boundaries and and what you learned about that as you were falling down, as you say? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I... I feel like it's it's in some ways it feels so recent that I'm really getting getting boundaries. Um, you know, I don't uh, I don't know that I learned that along the way even. Um, okay, I think well, what, what, what happened? <laughs> yeah, totally. I think what I learned along the way it took me a long time was about compassion. You know, and maybe that's part of what you know you're talking about. You're saying, can you speak your truth? Like, can there be a compassionate field where that's okay to do. Uh-huh. Uh, everyone's sort of sitting in compassion together. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, I think what I'm currently learning about boundaries, I'm a big fan of, of the uh, definition of boundaries that Prentice Hemphill, who is formerly the um, director of healing justice at Black Lives Matter Global Network, um, uh, they had a definition of boundaries that went viral at one point that was uh, boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. Mm. I love that. Yeah. And I've, I've had, I've had other uh, Buddhist um, meditation teachers, spring washroom jumps to mind who really talk about boundaries as actually the place where you, where you meet where you actually bring people in. You're saying, like, look, you, you can come here, and here we can find love. Um, right. But it, it gets thought of as this kind of, like, here's where you are out, and it's actually an, an invitation to here's where there can be a closeness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been thinking about boundaries a lot more that way, and that's been helping me. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I love that quote so much. Um, because so many of the couples I work with talk about the part of them that wants their partner to be free and have fun, while there's this other part of them that's screaming at them about how scared they are and how afraid they're going to lose them. And so that that place where you can balance those two competing parts of you is always so challenging to find. And so how how do you help people when they're in that situation where part of them wants to be a hell yes to their partner doing whatever and another part of them wants to just possess them and keep them at home. <laughs> yeah, you know, one thing that, that jumps to mind is I've been playing more and more, and this is a very, this is the therapist in me, um, where we talk about inner work um, and parts work. Um, and it's also kind of a Buddhist thing as well. We, like, look inside at the different aspects of our experience is that we can actually practice with self boundaries you know mm. so like the the part of me that like you know is scared and doesn't want to move forward um can say to the part of me that's like but i love this person i want them to go do a thing you know and feel happy about it i have aspirations to to have compersion let's say 
the other part that's scared can be like, great, cool, like spend t- 10 minutes trying to feel the compersion, but then we need to take a break because it's like exhausting. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> there can be this like inner work around inner boundaries. So, you know, like, and then we like need to go take a nap, you know, so <laughs> that we can have kind of like these internal boundary places where par- different parts of our own inner experience meet with love and can join in a process together. Mm. That's so beautiful. I love that. So much about what I teach about jealousy is about the person who's feeling jealous doing their own work. And when they come to me, they think I'm going to talk their partner into doing something different. (laughs) I start out by saying, it's not your partner's job to keep you from feeling jealous. And that's like a revolutionary concept to a lot of people <laughs> that it's our mm-hmm. own inner mm-hmm. work that we need to do on, on those feelings and why they're coming up. It doesn't mean that your partner can't be kind to you and, you know, if they're willing to negotiate certain behaviors, but ultimately it rests on the person feeling jealous to do their own inner work, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, I think there's like uh, so much more room for a both there. Then mm-hmm. we um, that we always notice too, because I do mm-hmm. think that there is inner work, even just the way I was just describing it, you know. But that could include, you know, uh, an outer request, you mm-hmm. know. So like, great, you know, try to feel. You know, like I'm having like two parts of me inside, one saying to the other, you know, like great, try to feel compersion on your own for ten minutes. But then when you know when you get exhausted with with whatever that process is happening for us, like, then it's actually, you you know, you have a need, and, like, let's have an internal boundary that you don't pass, go past your own internal need, that you go then ask your partner, okay, I'm ready to, like, change gears and do something different now. You know, mm-hmm. I think that in, in attachment reality, this might be the, like, ambivalent uh, partner who's, like, I'm, I'm needing a lot of attention and contact, um, and they are being requested to kind of self-soothe as opposed to sort of the avoidant partner who's maybe being requested to, like, make more contact, you know, like we're offering mm-hmm. each other some of these things that, that are a little hard for us to do based on our attachment style for mm-hmm. the sake of the relationship. So mm-hmm. you, can, you can use this, like, internal boundary thing to practice self-soothing, and you can do that work internally, like, great try having that compersion thing going on while still letting yourself have the external you know uh ask of but then at some point like go tell them like you're exhausted and that you actually do need them to pay some attention to you um that we actually have a lot of room to to work on you know the self-soothing or the contact in a range of ways that are internal and external and they don't, we don't have to go, you have to do it all on your own or you have to do it, you know, with someone there. You're not completely reliant and you're not completely unreliant. We're talking about interdependence, you know, we're exactly. talking about in Buddhism, this is the, the combination of the Sangha and the, the Dharma or the Buddha. You know, we all have the Buddha in us and we're using the Dharma lesson, but we have to do it in community and the Sangha. Like these are the three jewels. Like we can't quite separate them ever. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks at sumatisparks.com. 
And we're speaking with Anna Hirsch, who is a licensed marriage family therapist, an artist, and she calls herself a compersion nerd. So um, we started, you started to use the word compersion. So um, if you have any questions for Anna about compersion, um, alternative relationship and family styles, or anything else, please feel free to give us a call. The call-in number is 657-383-1132. Again, that's 657-383-1132. And you won't interrupt us. You'll be put on hold, and we'll just answer your call when the timing is right. So tell me a little bit more, Anna, about why you call yourself a compersion nerd and um, anything that you want to share with us about what you've learned about compersion. I know you've already talked about creating a field of compassion, um, but you must be really thinking hard about compersion in relation to your therapy practice. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. I um, I had the pleasure, actually, of writing my master's thesis on how I, I basically see compersion uh, as an aspect of, of how I am a therapist. Um, you know, I, I define compersion in that way that's a little bit broader, that's like the joy at others' joy and mm-hmm. not necessarily about the romantic partner piece. Uh, I've had some frustration, not like traveling around the Internet and people on, you know, English <laughs> language usage sites will be like, well, that's just some word that poly people use. It has nothing to do with joy. It's just about like pleasure around a partner, but it's only that. And, you know, the the concept is so much broader than that. You know, we look at mudita gets referenced a lot from Buddhism. Um, there's actually kind of a lot of words out there that we, you know, we aren't necessarily thinking of all of the time. Um, some other poly communities use the term frubble. Um, hmm. uh, there's language out there in the psychology world about this, but the joy for another's joy, there's some scientists, folks on the East Coast in the United States who call it simhedonia. Okay, so this is like sympathy, which is very similar to compassion, the, the with type pathos, passion. Um, but it's with hedonia instead of with pathos. So here we have the hedonism. So you're being with pleasure. Um, there's some other folks who have called this positive empathy. And I think that this is really where I tend to think about and define compersion that joining with another's joy or joining with joy in the field and so I think this is a really important part of how I do my work because I think that therapists will very often get trained to you know look for the problems (laughs) why are people coming Mm -hmm. in they have quote presenting problems and so we often get encouraged to join with people suffering in order to alleviate it. Mm. But a very common and and natural part of being human is joy. And we don't get taught how to join with people's joy. That this Mm. somehow suddenly could feel wrong in the therapy, that we aren't there to help with that. We're there to help with the suffering. And so I'm really um, trying to take a stand, um, missing a big chunk of people's whole experience when we're I'm sitting with them in, in therapy. 
Yeah, I could imagine that almost would make people feel a little uncomfortable, almost like a little too much intimacy when the therapist is joining with their joy. And I've felt that in my sessions where when my couples are, you know, feeling their love for each other and they have a moment of, of deep intimacy, I feel so happy. And I, sometimes I ask them, I say, come on, hug it out, you know, just to kind of give it a little, um, little less intimacy, you know, just kind of, come on, hug it out. Kind of like guys would talk to each other, you know, um, because it can almost feel threatening to them when you're too in their joy and their love. Right. Yeah. It, I, it, it, it's, you know, it's very vulnerable. In Buddhism, the concept of mudita, that's sort of this universal joy for all beings, is commonly thought of as one of the hardest things to practice. Mm. You know, there's this book that um, came out a few years ago from the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, Bishop Desmond Tutu, um, called The Book of Joy. And it's like uh-huh. following them around some conversations that they're having and they talk about the hardships of life and how you move through them and you have the post-traumatic growth. And these are some of the issues with joy is how to move through the hard stuff, to come back to the good stuff, et cetera. And the very last paragraph of their book, they're like, and we would be remiss to, you know, not acknowledge that basically everything we've told you here is how to do this like alone. So you need to go out, find a way to go out there and do this with people. Good luck. which is so, I mean, I love these humans so much, and yet it's like, oh, really? But I think it's true. It's just really hard for us to be available to ecstasy together because it's so vulnerable. You know, um, Brene Brown talks about foreboding joy. We are, like, so afraid that the joy is going to go away again, that we, we end up in a place where we only can feel this kind of joy that's, like, dark and about to disappear again mm-hmm. um, it is it is a a very vulnerable thing to do and i and i think in some ways that's why it's so much so important for it to be in the conversation more mm-hmm. um yeah yeah and i, and I think people, that, uh, sorry go ahead I'm just, I was just going to start to say something about another direction. I think that's why actually compassion is so important here. I think the conversation often happens around compersion and its flip is jealousy. And I think we need to talk way more about compersion and its flip being compassion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So compassion is the opposite of compersion? It, by my reality, yes. You know, you, I think of compersion as joy for another's joy. You have a desire for that joy to increase and multiply or last. And, you know, we talk about jealousy as like heartache, let's say, at another's joy. And we want mm-hmm. it, we somehow need it to lessen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes you talk about this other opposite. We, we go to the German word schadenfreude, right, that there's a joy for another's heartache, for another's suffering, and there's almost like this desire for the suffering to increase. But if we do one more, you know, iteration of that, we can have heartache for another's heartache. That's compassion. We're like joining with the suffering because we want it to lessen. Mm-hmm. And in any given moment in our lives, you know, we're, we're cre- being creative and we're having like joyful things happen. 
And then there's destruction and loss and hard things are happening. And we need in any given moment either compersion or compassion. We need this, mm-hmm. this joining with the joy and joining with the grief and an, a fluid ability to come in and out of those two things. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that you um, refer to Buddhism frequently. I use a lot of Buddhist concepts in my practice too. And because I see people not able to accept the love that's right in front of them because it might go away. And so um, it's the concept of pleasure without attachment. Um, and so, yeah, it will probably go away and then it'll come back again and then it'll go away and it'll come back. And so the more we can practice being the witness of that and not letting it take us away, take us into the feelings where we become the feelings. Instead, we practice witnessing the feelings and watching them pass and trying to enjoy it while it's there, but know that we can't cling to it and control it and keep it there. But it's not who we are anyway. We aren't the feelings. We aren't the beliefs. So um, maybe you can talk a little bit more about how you've come to marry your knowledge of Buddhism with your practice. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's just right, because I think that, you know, it, so in Buddhism, the, the, the they call the far enemy of joy is envy, jealousy, resentment. Um, but it, when you think about it, the, it, it, mudita is one of these four Brahma Viharas, these sort of sublime states, uh, loving kindness, uh, compassion, mudita, the joy, or compersion, I think, and then equanimity, upekka, or, or peacefulness. Um, that, you know, if I'm looking at the joy part, if we're having this conversation about compersion and we're trying to have more joy, we actually need those three other things. We need a, a way to come in and out of peacefulness with the change and the chaos. We need a, a benevolent field, you know, this metta, the loving kindness within which to do this. And then we also need the compassion, like jealousy out there on the far end is like, okay, don't do that. But for me personally, that doesn't give me something to do. It's mm-hmm. just resisting something. It, compassion gives me something to do. It says, here, mm. you can come do this thing. Be with that hard feeling. Mm. So there's a way to, to like, uh, bring in a positive feeling into the experience of jealousy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so suddenly now we can transform that experience. And they talk in Buddhism about these four Brahma Viharas as ways of, like, you know, when one is happening or not happening, another can come in and help with it. And that these four pieces seem to be really interlocking and, and important. And I, I think in some ways, actually, Carl Rogers, who's a famous therapist, has some version of this. He talks about three things that are really necessary to practice therapy. He says that we need unconditional positive regard and we need empathy and then we need congruence. That's what the word he uses. So I think of the unconditional positive regard as that metta, the benevolence, the sort of loving kindness for all beings, the, the wish for them to be well. And I think of the congruence. I mean, what he's talking about there is like if you're a therapist and you go in there and you like say with a, with a stern voice to your client, I'm really just not mad at you at all right now. I'm just totally happy with what you're doing. You know? <laughs> Sense the client's going to get like, what? Like, I can tell that's not true. Um, mm-hmm. And that this, I think, is the peace. 
the inner peace or the peace in the field, like how to move with the waves of life in ways that aren't kind of like choppy and against the grain uh, or incongruent. And then the third one, the, the empathy, I think that's the, the compassion and the compersion together. That's the karuna and the mudita in Buddhism. It's just that he uses empathy as one word, and he doesn't break it apart into positive empathy and then the, you know, or the, the, the joy empathy and the suffering empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Carl Rogers is a, is a person-centered therapist who actually is using this, this framework and didn't even quite maybe know it. Right. Well, they're probably universal principles of human interaction that we all land upon. <laughs> um, I know another, you talked about when you moved to California and you found a community that was practicing this non-traditional relationship style that you were longing for, trying to learn about. And um, I know in Buddhism, the Sangha is also a big part of how we can practice these concepts. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what community has meant to you and how that's showing up in your life today? Yeah, um, I am, uh, I, I, I could probably tear up pretty quickly feeling a lot of gratitude for how much um, depth and breadth of connection I have in my life um, and how helpful that has been for me. Uh, was on the phone last night was one of my friends, you know, just needing to cry something out <laughs> and mm-hmm. have that be okay and not mean too much. And, you know, that aspect of me getting to um, practice me, the Buddha in me, you know, using what Dharma I know, which is like something about getting to feel my feelings. And, with, and allow them to be there, as you were talking about, you know, uh, but with somebody present was very healing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, that's part of what I love about being a therapist is kind of trying to practice with that. There's like a sangha of two, and we're trying to figure out how to have people, uh, how, my clients and I are trying to figure out how they can have more of that experience of being witnessed uh, and seen. Um, and the healing aspect of that. Um, I don't. I don't always know how to do it. <laughs> um, there's a lot that I still think I'm learning. You know, I, a couple of years ago, I was trying to do uh, this thing that I was calling the More Than One Joy Plan, mm-hmm. and I gave. I did a couple of workshops, and uh, you know, I'm down. I'm a little hard on myself about this, but. Uh, I was, I was like, I, I don't know what the fuck I was trying to do there. <laughs> and I had some figured it out. You know, I don't know, you know, what the perfect elements are or I haven't articulated them the way some of what I just articulated about um, uh, Carl Rogers and the Brahma Viharas and what I believe compersion is, that it's the flip of compassion. Like, some that I've thought through a lot more. But how do two people actually work together? to create more joy is something I'm still uh, deeply trying to um, observe and run experiments on in my own life and learn about. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm the student of, of the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, and I'm, I'm out there trying to run these experiments that they, they were telling me to go run. Mm-hmm. 
And, and what about the larger community that you and your partner are part of? How has that helped you in your growth as a non-monogamous person? Yeah, I've gotten to fall on my face a few times and, you know, not been turned away uh, by the world. I have had a few uh, deep regrets about how I've been uh, shown up in metamorph relationships and, you know, learning a lot more about how to have way more compassion for everyone so that mm-hmm. I can you know, go slower and go at the pace I need to so I don't hurt people again. Uh, Mm -hmm. Or or even just rub them the wrong way, you know, if I can be a little bit, like, more gentle with myself. Um, But um, I'm very very grateful for uh, my learning and my partner's learning, William's learning, and how to mm, navigate this tendency for people to get onto pedestals and then you know from from a pedestal you can fall Uh, Mm -hmm. that we need to be human too that we need to be open about our healing that we're like in you know fast uh, rapid learning right now about our own intergenerational trauma how to heal that how to make sense of ourselves and this you know community of people who are you know, working together, really doing it uh, mm-hmm. together, that kind of witness together, care together, collective care, uh, to try to learn and, ch- and change some of some of the shit that we've been handed, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to um, uh, not to diminish, you know, the, the traditions and the wisdoms that we've been handed to. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I've traveled around a lot around the country speaking at polyamory conferences and going to um, retreats that have, you know, polyamorous and free love people. And I have to say that the community there in the the, um, Bay Area, particularly the East Bay Area, before the pandemic, it was kind of concentrated there. Now we're spread all over. But that community really is at the leading edge of um, consent culture, of kind of finding this gray zone between swinging and polyamory, um, where, Mm -hmm. you know, you think of swinging as like purely sexual, there's, you know, other than like friendly contact with people, there's not really any kind of like ongoing love. Um, And then you think of polyamory on the other end of the spectrum where, um, you know, there's more commitment and, you know, full ongoing love relationships. But the community that you guys have created is a lot of gray area where there's there's loving friendships, deep loving friendships that are sometimes sexual and morph in and out of that field of sexuality. Um, and everybody's just kind of learning and growing together. And there's so much support around the what you call post, post-traumatic growth there's so much support around that in the community that together I see it like rising to another level. And you may not see that because you're in it, you know, but as I go outside to other parts of the country and come back to it, I see that it's really um, kind of leading the growth of how we do a community like that. That's 
so free sexually and that's loving, that's not separating sex from the heart. So I just want to acknowledge that. And then with the little time we have, speaking of hearts, I want you to talk a little bit about <laughs> how you, you came to your heart art. I just see your adorable little hearts on Instagram all the time and you're talking hearts, you know, giving these beautiful messages. So um, can you talk a little bit how about how you, you came to using heart art to get your message across? Yeah, I thank you. One of my one of my lovers one time told me that I was obsessed with hearts and I think I guess at some point I just embraced that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and I think I'm I'm you know, I love the the um heart and brain cartoon that uh the awkward yeti is the name. I don't remember the artist's name at this moment which I feel bad about. Um but heart heart and brain uh is an amazing comic. Uh that very much separates the heart and the brain and has them talk to each other. And I think I wanted in this kind of other gray area, as you're mentioning, um, to be like, well, but but what if the heart and the brain are actually a little more commingled and a little more confused with each other? They're kind of like, Mm -hmm. you know, there is this sense in Buddhism that we, in English, too much focus on the brain, this mindfulness word. It's like skillfulness is actually really what we're that involves the heart and the gut. It involves the whole nervous system trying to be more skillful. Mm-hmm. Um, that I wanted to represent that somewhat. So I started using, you know, hearts as cartoons to kind of tell their stories and their little, like, one-off little moments of, like, uh, skillfulness or unskillfulness as being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is beautiful that I'm, you know, there are other artists that I'm, I'm rising up with giants. You know, our community was, is rising up with giants. There are, I appreciate what you're saying about what we're up to. Uh, I think it's true on many levels, and they're also, we're, we're not alone. We're, there are many groups, there are many people out there who are, um, you know, changing culture all the time, uh, and that's really important to, to remember, I think. Um, yeah, so that's, where I'm, I'm coming to the heart art, I'm really happy with it. Um, I've been doing that as like a daily practice for almost I don't know, three and a half, almost four years now. Wow. Um, and it's very grounding. I, mm. I, yeah, I just love that I gave myself that, that gift of like um, commitment to my own, to my own joy. You know, I have this concept that I want to, put out there more uh, called self compersion mm-hmm. and people are like, what the hell is that? And well, I feel like if you can practice self compassion, that you can practice self compersion, there might be a part of me that's really having a fun time with something. And another part of me that's not so sure it should have that fun time mm. or there's a, or that part of me that's having the fun time might feel some, some almost like some shame around it. And so my mm-hmm. inner witness could look at the fun part and go, Hey, don't listen to the to the critic right now. It's okay. Keep feeling that. Keep doing that. So some <laughs> part of me said said to myself, like it's okay to have this joy. This, you know, I was practicing self compersion and trying to extend my own little joy in the world. Well, that's amazing. I mean, to do anything daily for three and a half years is incredible. So <laughs> kudos to you for keeping that beautiful expression of your art in that way and. It really touches me every time I see it as well. So, 
it's, it's at least mm-hmm. affecting one, one person, and I'm sure many others as well. So, um, Anna, it's been incredibly wonderful to have you on the show, and I want to give you some a uh, few minutes here to tell our listeners how they can get more of you. Um, so anything that you want to offer them, go ahead. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I would say that it, it is a practice in Buddhism to uh, give dana generosity, like learn about your generosity, be in your generosity, and it's also a practice to ask for it. <laughs> um, so I count is patreon.com forward slash Anna D. Hirsch. Uh, it's where I put up my heart art. Uh, there are some goodies on there that you can't get other places. Uh, and there's like a little growing community of people there. It's huge to have people come there and join, even just for a dollar a month. Um, it's just so sustaining for me. So that might, might be one, my, 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 one of my main plugs. The other plug I have is, it's a little scary to say this, but I've been trying to have the bravery to put this out there, I put up a website at some point a while ago. Uh, the URL is ilovewhenyoulove.com. And it is a, a, a labor of love idea that I want to start collecting compersion stories. Mm. So people who have had this experience or that experience, kind of like the poly role models site, like just really starting to like have a – a a go-to repository of, like, what is compersion uh, anecdotally? You know, what are the stories? What are the many faces of compersion? So if anyone wants to go there and drop me a line, (laughs) and kind of convince me to start doing this project more wholeheartedly, I I am inviting that in uh, with a little bit of um, anxiety, but happy, happily. Awesome. And can you say your Patreon... um, URL one more time and spell your name for people. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Anna D. Hirsch, A-N-N-A-D-H-I-R-S-C-H. Great. And then your private therapy practice. Uh, I know I put on the graphic, the new Pollyanna, but it looks like you prefer the like LikeLove.com. Oh, live live, live like, like love. love. Yeah, live like love is my therapy practice, and anybody can go there and read about what I'm doing as a therapist, and and you know request time to get on the phone with me. Live like love. Okay, dot com. Great. Okay, Anna. Well, thank you so much, and I wish you the best of luck with all your many projects. Thanks again for being on the show. Thank you so much, Sumati. Okay, I'll talk to you later. So next week on Leading Next week on Leading Edge Love Radio, we'll have back on the show Susan Campbell, who's a prolific author of relationship books. She has a new book coming out next week on the day of the show. It will be released and it's about triggers in relationships. And she's quite the expert. She's been writing books for decades. So please join us at six PM Pacific time on Leading Edge Love Radio. Good night, everyone. <laughs>